Bonjour, hello everyone. Thank you for tuning into the Cashew Podcast. In today's episode, I chat with Dr. Amy Krenzman, who is a professor at the University of Minnesota in the School of Social Work. During our conversation, Dr. Krenzman shares resources and recommendations for supporting addiction recovery during the COVID-19 pandemic. Dr. Krenzman also highlights some new resources that she's created in partnership with our center, including a free online learning module series and a resource website, both of which we will link to in the description of this episode and on our podcast landing page on the Cashew website. We hope you enjoy this episode and check out the resources and continue to take care. Hi, Amy. How are you doing? Good, Karina. How are you today? You know, I am doing okay. Hanging in there, kind of working on getting sleep and and taking care during kind of chaotic times. And could you, Amy, share with our listeners a little bit about about yourself, Um, kind of introduce yourself, share a little bit about your work? Absolutely. I um, joined the School of Social Work in 2013, and um, I teach the addiction class, and I do research on addiction recovery. And what that means is that I study uh, the experience of addiction recovery, sometimes for um, groups that are not usually studied. Um, I also study systems that support recovery, such as sober living houses, 12-step programs like Alcoholics Anonymous, Um, and I I develop interventions that help people uh, support their recovery. Nice. And how are you... How are you doing in in adjusting during the pandemic yourself, and and are there ways you're taking care of yourself? Definitely. Well, I, I am just so glad that one of the things that's healthy for us all to do is to go outside. And thank goodness that we are permitted to do that and that that's a a low risk activity because I found that absolutely to be life-saving just to go outside, go for a walk, get a bit of exercise. Um, That's really been a lifesaver. That's been my number one thing. Ditto. I I couldn't agree more if it if we were in a place where we didn't have the privilege to access our parks or trails, just yeah, fresh air, it would this would have been a lot more difficult to 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 manage and navigate. And so you've recently released some new resources, um, as I mentioned in my intro, focusing on how um, child welfare professionals and and other um, helping professionals can support addiction recovery during the pandemic. And for our listeners who maybe aren't sure or still learning, could you define recovery and, and explain a little bit more about what it, what does it mean for someone to be in recovery? In the broadest sense, recovery, a person in recovery is someone who formerly had a problem with drugs or alcohol or maybe another addictive behavior like gambling, and who currently uh, does not have that problem anymore. Researchers lately have embraced this very wide, broad definition of recovery. Uh, And because the definition is so broad, and because in recent years, researchers and advocates have embraced the philosophy that there are many pathways to recovery, there isn't just one way. 
the best thing you can do is if you meet someone or one of your friends discloses to you that they're a person in recovery, just ask them, well, what does that mean to you to be a person in recovery? Because it will mean something different to different people. Thank you. And let me say, so we, you have been a great partner with Cashew in our center for many years now in helping develop lots of resources around your, um, your research around addiction, around recovery. And so we have, we have great existing resources um, that we hope folks will continue to access. But could you share with our listeners a little bit more about some of the new resources that you've created and those, those resources that are specific to um, the current times and, and navigating addiction recovery in the pandemic? Like um, just kind of sharing a little bit more about the modules, the web resource page and, and other resources you'd like folks to know about. Absolutely. Well, it was sort of interesting how this all came about. So very early in the pandemic, like week one, um, um, I was invited to uh, be on our local NBC affiliate and interviewed on how people are staying sober during the pandemic, because there was this immediate realization across the media that the pandemic was going to cause relapse and in fact, anecdotally, what we're hearing is that that's true, that the stress, the biopsychosocial stress of the pandemic did cause a lot of people to, to relapse. When I started to pull my thoughts together about being interviewed, I, want, I wanted to consult the research, and I felt that people listening would need a handout. Like I almost put my teacher hat on, and I thought, okay, if I were giving this talk to a group of people in a room, I would want to give them a handout of resources. So realizing that would be impossible on TV, I developed a website of resources to serve as the handout. And when I built the website, I started to dig through the internet to find the resources available out there, and I was just astonished by all that I found. I mean, my jaw would just hang open in awe when I found all that there was. And and the recovery community pivoted very nimbly to provide lots and lots of stuff for people. So by the time I gave the interview, which was two minutes long, I knew I had an hour of useful material. And all that material was on the website, but I knew I had something that people could put into use right away. So I gave a couple of podcasts, and the content of those podcasts are in the modules that I developed for the Center for Advanced Studies in Child Welfare. Awesome. And we will link for our listeners, we will link to those resources in our description, of course, so folks can access and, and dig in a little more um, and, you know, watch and listen. And so the online modules are like a narrated PowerPoint, so folks can listen to those in the background. Whereas um, you said like the, the web resource page is something folks can read through and click through and follow links. And, and so as you, or could you share with our listeners, what are some key takeaways you think um, frontline child welfare workers and other folks who are supporting individuals and families right now, um, some key takeaways that they should know about addiction recovery during these times? Absolutely. The, the research clearly shows that one of the strongest sources of support comes from other people who are also in recovery. That 
social support, supporting recovery is very important. But when that social support comes from other people also in recovery, then that really leads to sustained abstinence, sustained recovery. So one of the biggest challenges facing people during the pandemic is that the face-to-face AA and Alcoholics Anonymous and Narcotics Anonymous meetings were shuttered. And um, therefore, people were separated from this really essential source of social support. Um, And also, always there are new people seeking recovery for the first time, and they couldn't walk into a meeting any longer. The meetings were closed. So to keep in mind that the most powerful thing for people in recovery is being as closely connected to pos- as possible to other people in recovery. Um, so that's, that's the number one takeaway. The number two takeaway, research has been done on this. What's the best way to refer someone to an AA meeting or a Narcotics Anonymous meeting, whether it's face-to-face or online? And just simply telling someone to go is not enough. Giving someone a pamphlet or a meeting list or a website link is not enough. What really helps is to connect that person to someone who's already going to make a personal introduction. Have those two attend the meeting together, either in person or online, and then follow up with your client and ask, how did it go? You know, let them know, go ahead, go to the meeting, and then let's talk a day later and let me know how it went. So those two pieces which recur in different research studies conducted by different scientists, the the social support of introduction to someone who's already in the middle of that community, and then the assignment to go with that person and attend a meeting, and then afterward the accountability to follow up and say, how was that? So those, I would say, are the, the main takeaways. Yeah, and and looking through and and reading through and watching your modules and your resources, and seeing um, the addiction recovery community adapt like many other, you know, areas to pandemic and connection and and utilizing virtual meetings and such. Do you and I, you know, are not not sure if you're hearing or if you you have an idea. Um, do you think any of these new kind of modes of connecting for many will stick? You know, like I, you know, I, there are obviously, I think, challenges um, and barriers, but I, I'm wondering if you are hearing or if you think any of, you know, as even states open back up um, and maybe are going to shift towards more in-person gatherings if they're able to, um, are you hearing or thinking that those virtual meetings may have been more accessible to folks and may continue in some capacity or, or not so much? One, one good thing to know is that thousands of electronic and virtual ways to connect with recovery resources existed before the pandemic. There were video meetings, there were message boards, um, daily readings, um, recorded recovery talks. So, but, but, what happened with the pandemic is that very many, many more people, um, by hundreds of thousands, jumped on and started getting their recovery support online. So there's a tremendous amount of meetings available online. There are conferences, recovery conferences online. And all forms and pathways of recovery have different online presences. 
such as um, every different 12-step program you can imagine, what they call 12-step alternatives, which are recovery groups for people who don't care for the 12-step model, um, and support groups for the friends and family of people who are addicted. So all of these groups are available online. I believe that the experience of what's happened during COVID will permanently affect the recovery community moving forward in a positive way, because what it did for a lot of people is it forced them to use the technology. And I think across the board, people are hesitant to use the technology. They can be afraid of it. They just don't like it. They don't want to bother with it. They know what works for them and they don't want to change. And there's two great examples of this. One is I'm old enough that I remember when our family got our first microwave. I was in college, and even though we had the shiny new microwave on the counter, kitchen counter, my dad still took the morning, the morning coffee, you know, that afternoon, like the leftover coffee, and he heated it up on a pot on the stove. It's like, Dad, we have a microwave. Why are you heating coffee up on a pot on the stove? And he did it because he had his system. It worked perfectly well. The coffee got hot and he didn't see the need for learning something new to make it happen. Now, another example, I love teaching. Um, I love uh, teaching. I have my way of doing it. Faced, I've always taught face-to-face -face, and I always felt inside myself, I don't wanna teach online. I just don't wanna do it. I hope I never have to face that moment when I have to do it. So I too had that resistance to technology, but what, what the pandemic has done for a lot of people in recovery is it's made them have to take that leap of trying the Zoom meeting. And for, for some, they really like it, they find it works, and they find a lot of benefits to it. It's pretty efficient. You don't have to travel, there's no travel time, so uh, you can fit it into your day a little more efficiently. Um, and uh, it can make you try meetings that you normally wouldn't uh, attend, make you a little more adventurous and make new friends. Uh, one thing with online meetings is that people dial in from all over the world. So you can get a certain lift from meeting people in recovery all over the world. Uh, so I think that when the pandemic is over and people begin resuming face-to-face -face meeting, which is actually starting to happen in the Twin Cities, people are starting to open up their 12-step um, meeting rooms with social distancing, with masks. But I think even when things open up, there'll be people who feel better about using online meetings. Maybe they're high-risk individuals, um, or they're just simply found that it's more efficient. Um, and so I think that online meeting attendance is going to remain elevated when, when things, when the rooms open up again, it's going to go way down, but it's going to be elevated versus its pre pandemic levels. Yeah. And for listeners too, and who, just so they know in your web resource page that you have also pulled together a list, um, for maybe folks who don't have the equipment, the internet, or I think even people who are maybe Zoomed and virtual meeting out or just not comfortable and wanting to be on camera or in that kind of setting, but that you have a great list of um, phone numbers that if folks have a phone that they can at least call 
and have access to some some of them even 24-7 support. Um, and so I think that is also a great and important addition to that web resource page and just, you know, again, thinking of access and just kind of where people are at and, and, and helping meet people where they're at. Absolutely. And there's two of those resources I'd like to showcase. One is the local Alcoholics Anonymous or Narcotics Anonymous inter, uh, intergroup they're still answering their phone. So if a person has only a phone and that phone does not connect to the inter internet, they can call uh, the local intergroup and they uh, can look up a telephone meeting on the computer and give the person the access information. The other thing I'd love for people to know about are this relatively new um, system that's on the recovery Horizon, and those are recovery community organizations. Now, I knew about Minnesota Recovery Connection, which is in Minneapolis, but when I did the research for the website, I found that Minnesota has six recovery community organizations across the state. So these are brick and mortar buildings. Most often, these are offices that exist in the three-dimensional world. Of course, they're shuttered now, but they're still answering their phones. And these organizations, recovery community organizations, came about to fill a gap. They're not treatment centers and they're not mutual aid groups. They are in that missing space in between. And they do several things that are really powerful. First of all, they have the philosophy that there are multiple paths to recovery and they don't judge anyone. Anyone at all can call them up. They provide a wide range of services to people in recovery, such as maybe someone wants to go back into treatment, or maybe someone needs housing, or maybe someone needs public assistance. They can help with all that. And the thing that's exciting about their work is what they do is they train people in recovery to become peer support specialists. And then those people go on the phone and help other people. So they have some formal official training they learn about the resources that are available, and they follow a code of ethics. And then these folks are the ones answering the phones. They will also do a weekly recovery outreach call. So they'll, if anyone wants to, they can get their name on the list, and they can receive a telephone call once a week from these individuals checking in with them. So the recovery community organizations are answering their phones now during COVID. And if the client has that phone number... Um, and dials them up, that person will help them with whatever else they need. And I did hear that if they get the answering machine, they should leave a message. And thinking about the, you know, both virtual support right now and even just distance support and, and you know, phone support, are there any privacy concerns that, um, or, or as people maybe think of privacy concerns, I wonder, could you share, are there any... Can you share any ways that um, folks in these support groups and organizations are helping create safe spaces um, that look different during the pandemic? Absolutely. One of the um, one of the reservations people might have about online video meetings is worries about their privacy. So something important that. Um, a social worker can do or a child welfare worker can do for a client is to actually teach them some basic Zoom skills. Far and away, most of the 
re virtual recovery meetings are on Zoom. So you could teach your client how to turn off their camera if they're more comfortable keeping the camera off and how to change their name, how to click on that box with the three dots. Maybe the person only wants to put their first name. The other thing is that people who are running the meetings are learning very rapidly how to put special settings in Zoom to protect the privacy of people attending. For example, to disable the function of being able to record the meeting. And hopefully the person running the meeting has taken all those precautions, going into Zoom, going into the settings, and disabling some of the things that make the meeting riskier. Another thing um, counselors can do to help people initiate into Zoom meetings is to just warn them that there might be some small nuisance experiences they might have. For example, they might um, miscalculate the time change. If they're attending a meeting that's out of California, it's going to require a time change calculation. They might make an error or there might be an error listed in the meeting list about what time the meeting starts and your client gets on the meeting right as it's ending. Early in the pandemic, there was the problem of Zoom bombing, where bad actors would come into the meeting and show offensive images and type offensive words. By and large, that's gone. It's no longer happening because of the security protections that Zoom put in. And also, the people in the recovery community figured out these settings in Zoom to make things safer. And our website actually talks about all of that and has links to the updated recommendations for making a Zoom meeting safe. So I think that the, the counselor can reassure the client that there are things they can do to protect their privacy, and they can look for a meeting that does not have the record button enabled. There's certain, certain coaching that can go on, but also to let people know there might be some minor frustrations. The meeting might have a password, and, and it hasn't been listed what the password is. So to just go down the list and try the very next meeting. I looked up meetings on a worldwide list of AA meetings. I looked up meetings on Friday at noon, and there were 23 meetings on Friday at noon. So just simply to go to the very next meeting on the list. You didn't ask about this specifically, but another thing people can do for people new to the 12-step or the mutual aid experience is they can act encourage them to attend beginners meetings. And in a big electronic spreadsheet of virtual meetings, and we have those links on our website, like on a PC, you can go control F and search for beginner and search the list for beginners meetings. Now, beginners meetings will be especially welcoming for the beginner and will have special themes related to what it's like, what life is like in early recovery. So that would be a great, a great recommendation. So I just want to say something else about um, services online that cater to specific um, ethnic and racial groups. There's a recovery community organization in the Twin Cities called Twin Cities Recovery Project that especially caters to the African-American community. Now they have a website and a telephone number that clients can use. And then within the Native American community, there is the Red Road Wellbriety, which has a website. 
Um, on that website, I didn't see online meetings. I didn't find online meetings, but there are email addresses for people to connect to that very important resource. And Amy, are you, um, you know, within your resources or, or in the work you're continuing, and I know you continue to update and add to these resources, are there culturally specific resources available to folks and other resources that are tailored to, you know, specific communities um, that folks um, should know about and, and uh, as they kind of consider and, and dig into what's out there? Yes, there are. Um, first of all, there are 12-step alternatives. So if someone is uncomfortable with the spirituality that is part of a 12-step program, there are now groups that do not have a spiritual component. So there are those options. Women for Sobriety, Life Ring, and Smart Recovery are the main three. Within 12-step programs, there are a bunch of meetings that address certain um, identities within the population of human beings who are in recovery. So there are meetings for women. There are meetings for active military uh, uh, folks and veterans. There are meetings for LGBTQ individuals. Um, um, there were even meetings for, for physicians and for lawyers um, and for young people. And there are meetings in every language. So what can be really powerful is the recommendation to have your client attend a meeting that speaks to one of their other identities. So there's that double identity of being a woman and being in recovery or being a veteran and being in recovery um, that can be very po uh, powerful in terms of bringing about a, a powerful feeling of belonging. Awesome. Thank you, Amy. And is there anything else you would like listeners to, to know about addiction recovery and how to best take care of themselves if they are someone who is in recovery or how to be supportive to others during this time. I am writing a paper for a clinical social work journal summarizing all of these recommendations and what the research literature says. So I think preparing your client for the fact there'll be some nuisance variables, but those can be easily overcome helping your client to overcome any reluctance they have to technology. You can encourage them to think of it as an adventure or to try it. Um, and again, this idea of connecting them with someone who's already attending and inviting them to attend and then having that accountability to meet with them again and ask, how did it go? To emphasize the benefits of online meetings and one very powerful aspect of the research literature on recovery emphasizes the role of helping others, helping others in recovery. And there are several ways that people can help others, even if they're beginners. First of all, um, encourage your client to hop onto the online meeting 10 minutes early and stay on the meeting a little bit afterward, like 10 minutes after, because these are the periods at the beginning of the meeting are the periods when people have the opportunity to agree to read the opening statement of the meeting or be the timekeeper if there is one. So there's an opportunity to do service 
at the first 10 minutes of the meeting, as well as to socialize and network with other people. And people also share a lot of resources at the beginning and the end, uh, just before the meeting starts and just after the meeting ends. I think spending time with your clients to teach them the basics of Zoom, how to raise your hand, how to turn your camera on and off, how to change your name, how to use the chat, that that's time very well spent. Um, I also think it can be very helpful to have clients go through the online meeting list and choose a meeting for each day of the week. Meetings that look good to them, either because of the topic or something they're curious about or the origination location of the meeting and have them just make a paper calendar with every day of the week listing the meetings for each day that look good to them. So that when they wake up in the morning, they look at the calendar and they say, all right, what's my meeting going to be today? I think having that can be very handy. The regular recommendations for trying meetings are valid now to tell your client to try at least six different meetings before deciding it's not for them. And again, arriving early and staying late. The other thing counselors can do is to attend a remote meeting themselves. There are open meetings across a number of these mutual aid groups. And open meetings are ones where members of the community are very warmly welcome to attend. They're, they're designated open meetings on purpose. I have students in the addiction class attend an open meeting. And they're very hesitant. They don't want to intrude on a private space. And a lot of people don't like the idea of attending um, an open meeting, but it's open on purpose. The group has made that decision for themselves to be open. And if the counselor attends an open meeting, they're really in a very powerful position to tell their client what it's like and help them um, make, they have some authority then in explaining what to expect. And I think advising clients to do anything they can think of to solidify, extend, and maximize their connection with other people who are also in recovery, whether that's a text group or a Facebook friending people, social media, anything at all um, that they can do, just calling someone up who they're worried about or who they'd like to connect with to maintain those connections is a very powerful recommendation. Well, thank you so much, Amy. Those are all, I think, I think those will all be really helpful tips. And, and um, I know, <clears throat> and I believe frontline child welfare workers and other folks supporting individuals and families right now will really find these resources helpful. And so we are very appreciative on Cashew side for all your time and effort put into them and, and helping kind of tailor them to the child welfare workforce in some ways as well. Um, and so thank you. And thank you for your time chatting with me today and kind of giving an, a little intro and highlight of this important work. Well, thank you for having me. This podcast was brought to you by the Center for Advanced Studies in Child Welfare. This podcast was produced by Karina Berry. Our series editors were Denise Cooper and Cliff Dahlberg. Music was composed by Big Cats. And this podcast was supported in part by a grant from the Minnesota Department of Human Services, Children and Family Services Division. For more information, please visit the CASHU website at cascw.umn.edu.
Thank you for listening and stay well, everyone.